0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight, we are going to take a break from COVID. I think we all deserve it. Um, I think that we're well aware of the resurgence. And I think that if you regularly listen to this show, then you are almost certainly vaccinated, if at all possible for you to be vaccinated. Um, and I hope that you're wearing masks wherever you go. And, you know, that, that remains my advice wear a mask, social distance when possible. Uh, Get your teenagers vaccinated. Uh, Unfortunately, teenage vaccination rates are still pretty low, even though they now are approved to get the vaccine. And don't get a booster shot. Um, Now, I do have a little bit of a caveat on that this week, which is that it may be that those who are over 65 uh, will need boosters, but that research is still ongoing. And so for now, I would still not recommend a booster. Um, I would also not recommend going to places with low vaccination rates if you can avoid it. And yeah, that's pretty much all there is for tonight. Um, I just feel like we can do without the gloom and doom of COVID tonight because unfortunately there might be more COVID gloom and doom coming in the future. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to not spend a lot of time tonight talking about COVID, uh, and certainly not the full first half of the episode. Um, so yeah, uh, I do want to mention though, I will mention, I'm sorry, uh, that there is some concern, which is why I'm trying to not talk about it right now, but, um, of other strains because of course a lot of people aren't vaccinated at all and so especially in uh, other countries and as we talked about in um, the um, in countries that are not wealthy uh, there's still huge portions of populations, sometimes most of the population, often most of the population actually, who have not even had access to vaccines. So um, that's why I'm so passionately against boosters. Uh, if this is the first time you're listening, uh, that's why I'm so passionate against boosters because it's just a money grab um, from my opinion uh, and it... The science is just not there. Um, Like I said, it might end up coming out that people who are over 65 would need it, and that would make sense um, because that is the uh, cohort of people who are most likely to have severe COVID um, complications, to die. So it makes sense that that population might need more protection. But again, even so, I'm still uh, pro giving vaccines to other people who haven't even had a chance to have a single dose right now. So again, we are going to not talk about COVID at all for the rest of the night, I promise. And so what we're actually going to do first is turn to a couple of papers concerning the coloration of our favorite pets. All right, this might not dogs and cats might not be your best friends. You might love birds or ferrets or something more exotic um, or even something uh, smaller and fuzzier. But uh, we're going to be talking about cats and dogs tonight. The big two, let's be honest. (laughs) So first, uh, we're going to talk about the cat. So it turns out that what makes a tabby striped is actually kind of complicated. So I actually have two cats, one all black and the other is a mackerel tabby. And both of them have the same skin and hair cells, but those cells produce very different markings. And so senior author Dr. Gregory Barsh notes that research into striped patterns and segments started really only around 70 years ago. And so in animals like zebrafish, the patterns are actually created by the arrangement of different cell types. But in mammals, the skin and hair cells are exactly the same across the entire body. And the color pattern comes about because of differences in genetic activity between, say, cells underlying a dark stripe and cells underlying a light stripe, Barsh said. So in mammals like cats, the stripes are actually created by differences in when and how various genes are activated and how those genes affect development. The team had previously identified a gene called transmembrane aminopepidase Q or TACPEP. Cats with one version of the TACPEP gene have narrow dark stripes, whereas those with a mutant version of the gene have large whorls, quote-unquote, of dark fur. The mutant version is most common in feral cats. In order to do further research, they collected discarded tissue from clinics that spay feral cats. Some of the uteruses contained non-viable embryos, which the researchers were able to study. They found that around 28 to 30 days, cat embryos began to have different skin, to have skin differentiation patterns with thick and thin areas of the skin. And so the skin actually began to have differences uh, itself. And then at a later stage of development, the thick skin produced hair follicle follicles that produced eumelanin for dark fur. And the thin skin produced follicles that produce pheomelanin for light fur. And so the researchers were actually surprised to find this type of early activity that acted on the hair follicle structure rather than pigment production. So basically, it's actually differentiating before the pigment has even um, had a chance to develop it's not acting on the development of the pigment it's acting on the development of the actual underlying structures of the skin and hair follicles and it's doing it very early the team found that in 20 day old embryos several genes involved in cell growth and development are activated in areas of the skin that will thicken and develop dark fur producing follicles the genes are known to be part of a WNT signaling pathway, which is a molecular cascade that drives cells to grow and develop into specific cell types. One gene, DKK4, was particularly active. DKK4 codes for a protein that inhibits WNT signaling. It's the interaction between DKK4 and WNT, which seems to determine what color fur a patch of skin will produce. In dark patches, DKK4 and WNT balance out, but in light patches, DKK4 dominates. And so not only is this pretty interesting just in and of itself, because as I was noting, we haven't really understood uh, fur patterning and haven't been looking at it for all that long, actually. But someone who did look at it uh, years ago was Alan Turing. And so um, if you remember, Alan Turing was very famous for his code-breaking abilities and um, was just a, was frankly a genius genius. And um, he was extremely, extremely badly used by his government and uh, ended up committing suicide because uh, he was a gay man. And um, even in the 1950s, uh, it was actually illegal to be gay. Um, And so, yeah, Alan Turing is a bit of a tragic figure. Uh, It's really frustrating when you know that someone had such potential and they were snuffed out by just silly hatred um, of things that had nothing to do with anyone else. Um, But anyways, we're going to move on from that. And so Turing suggested that patterns such as stripes are produced when an, quote unquote, activator molecule boosts the production of an inhibitor molecule, and that the two molecules will be found in the same tissue. So in this case, the WNT is the activator and the DKK4 the inhibitor. And so the team believes, based on this theory, that DKK4 spreads more quickly through tissue than WNT signaling does, and that this uneven distribution causes the patterns of light and dark fur. And so a cat's TACPEP genotype, whether it is programmed for stripes or whorls, is another layer of complexity in that it determines where the DKK4 gene can be activated. But some of these mechanisms are still unclear. TACPEP codes for a protease, an enzyme that digests other proteins, But the researchers haven't yet determined whether it affects DKK4 directly or indirectly. And so as we always say in uh, research that more research will be needed, but uh, what they did for this research was that they looked at the 99 lives collection Um, a genetic database of um, cat genomes. And they found that Abyssinian and Singapura breeds have a mutant version of DKK4, which actually disables the gene. And this makes sense as they are uniformly colored with no stripes or spots. And so that's really interesting because I was wondering... I would like to see more about how they looked at cats that are one color. So for instance, I have an all black cat. And I wonder if that cat has this kind of um, mutant DKK4, which disabled the gene for, um, you know, having that push and pull of different colors. So yeah, it is very interesting The team hopes to determine, in the future, if similar mutations are found in wild cats. And so, work done previously on cheetahs suggests that the TACPEP genome affects the appearance of the animal's spots, and they believe that DKK4 might also be working on this pattern creation. Our observations to date are only on domestic cats, Barsh said. It is quite likely that the molecules and mechanisms studied in domestic cats apply to all of the more than 30 species of wild cats. But we will need to carry out additional studies of wild cat DNA to know that for sure. And in addition to that, the team would also like to expand its studies to look at animals like zebras and giraffes to see if this is a more basal mammalian adaptation or if other species have developed other mechanisms for creating skin or fur patterns. And so, yeah, that will be really interesting to see if it's the same mechanisms, the same kinds of genes, or if zebras and... Uh, giraffes have completely different um, pathways that lead to that coloration. Um, I mean, it could be either. It would make sense that they would all have the same um, having common ancestors. One would assume that this kind of coloration would have developed in earlier uh, animals. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting But, of course, we know, for instance, that dogs, which are a mammal, actually have different things going on. So the next paper is about new work that has been done recently on the coat patterns of dogs. So the researchers found that mutations in a single gene created five distinct patterns of coats. The coat patterns are found in breeds like the Corgi and Bernese Mountain Dog, and one variant called Dominant Yellow seems traceable to an extinct canid that split from Pleistocene wolves two million years ago. While we think about all this variation in coat color among dog, dogs, some of it happened long before dogs we're dogs. The genetics turn out to be a lot more interesting because they tell us something about canid evolution, said Danica Banash, a geneticist at the University of California, Davis. The five coats include the aforementioned dominant yellow, along with shaded yellow, agouti, which is alternating dark and light, black saddle, and black back, and are all controlled, as in cats, by the two types of melanin, eumelanin for black and pheomelanin for yellow. Now, of course, there are other coat variations, but those weren't explored in the current research. So, uh, for instance, um, Peter has two dogs, my boyfriend, and one of them is definitely a black back, uh, with yellow, um, with the rest of their fur being yellow, that's Wally, but Pal is, uh, black and white. And so, um, and he's got a little bit of a different, I couldn't, I I was looking at him the other day after I been reading about this and I can't tell if he is a black back or a black saddle. He seems kind of in between. So he might be some other variation of coat. Um but Wally is definitely a classic black back uh you know yellow tan um underbelly dog. And so I always think of him as sort of the quintessential kind of dog. Like when you think of dog something like Wally comes into your head, unless you have specific kinds of dogs. Um, you know, if you have a corgi and someone says dog, you probably think corgi. But um, yeah, <laughs> anyways, I digress. <laughs> and so the team looked at eight still living species, including domesticated dogs and wolves. And so the different coats are controlled by variations in the agouti signaling protein. The agouti signal controls how black pigment is distributed in the coats of a variety of mammals, including hares, horses, and mice. And so, you know, here is other mammals that have other kinds of... um, control mechanisms for their coats. So again, going back to cats, it would be interesting to see if they have something more like this, or if they have something more like cats. Um, And so because cats tend to have colorations that are more striped and Um, specific than dogs. So dogs tend to be more patchy than striped. Uh, Though obviously, um, I can think of, for instance, brindled dogs. That seems to be a kind of a striped pattern. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. Anyways, let's keep going. (laughs) The researchers found that two regions of the gene are needed to produce different coat colors. And so the dominant yellow coat is actually really It's really interesting that it's so ancient because they found that the genetic combination that produces this particular coat is also found in Arctic white wolves and moved into the evolutionary tree over 2 million years ago before modern wolves had even evolved. And so again, we're talking about dog coats and you think, oh, you know, dogs have been bred for many, you know, for a couple thousand years and... Uh, for several thousand years and they've, you know, been sort of molded and sculpted uh, by humans in, uh, you know, sort of the biggest, um, one of the biggest uh, versions of uh, animal husbandry and uh, breeding that there's so many varieties of dogs and you think, oh, well, probably their coats have something to do with that and the colors of their coats have developed along with this and dogs will probably have coat colorations that have to do with their own genes. But this is saying some of those genes are way more ancient and come from really much earlier ancestors. So now in the present day it's found in breeds like Irish terriers, Irish terriers, Shiba Inu, Chow Chows, Basenjis and Rhodesian Ridgebacks. I love Basenjis. <laughs> I love all dogs, I'm not going to lie, but Corgis, Basenjis, um I like little, I I like big dogs and I like little dogs that are basically big dogs just short. <laughs> Um, though, again, I like all dogs. Um, I would enjoy hanging out with any dog, um, as long as it was friendly. And so they also looked at a sample from a dog dated to 9,500 years ago with a black pattern that gives geneticists a better idea of what some of the first domestic dogs might have looked like. So that is very cool. And so it's always great to know more about things that you already know about. So, you know, we know a fair amount about dogs. We know a fair amount about their genetics because, you know, they've lived with us for a long time and they're a good subject for um, being able to study and we use them in a lot of uh, lab tests and so we know a lot about them, but there's always more to learn. Um, it's really funny. So I was talking to um, a professor and they are actually using dogs to teach, um, you know, an intro to biology course this semester. And they're going to be looking at, uh, they're going to be taking cheek swabs from dogs of the professor's Um In the science center, who have dogs, they're going to do that, and then they're going to have the students be able to, you know, do gels of the um, genetics of the dogs and compare them. And I thought that was a really lovely, Um, you know, in the in the world of COVID, you can't do that with your own with your own cells anymore. So we're not using human cells anymore. So they came up with this great idea to use the science professor's dogs, and I thought that's great, and I'm really excited about that. So we're going to continue to speak about dogs for a few more minutes, because new research from Germany suggests that dogs know when you're purposefully withholding treats from them. The study recorded that dogs reacted differently to people who seemed to not give them a treat, accidentally versus though those who seem to do it intentionally. And so this would suggest that they have an idea, at least somewhat of what people are thinking. And so in humans, this is called a theory of mind. It's the capacity to recognize that other people have their own set of thoughts, feelings and understanding of the world, which could be different from our own. It's part of empathy and can help us understand others' ideas and behaviors. And as is often the case, this was once thought to be a uniquely human trait. But we've talked fairly recently about how some birds seem to show traits that hint that they may have something akin to a theory of mind. So it's not surprising that we might find it in dogs. The research published in the journal Scientific Reports explored how these animals, who spend so much of their time in the company of humans, might just be able to understand, at least somewhat, our thoughts and motivations. So they used a modified version of a test that's been used on birds, non-human primates, and, well, young children, (laughs) to measure their ability to read intentionality Referred to as the unwilling versus unable task. It's always hard with nonverbal speech to really know what you're measuring there, but the nice thing about this task is that it's actually already established in other species, study author Britta Schunemann, currently a research scientist at Harvard University, noted. And we had this amazing opportunity with dogs in contrast to chimpanzees and monkeys in that we could let them approach us, which you can't deal with a chimpanzee, of course. And so 51 dogs were involved in the study, which consisted of a plexiglass barrier that had a gap through it. And so through the gap, you could pass a treat to the dog. So the researchers then set up one of three testing scenarios. They asked the dog's owners to perform three different tests with their dogs. First, they would pantomime giving a treat through the gap, but then change their mind and deliberately place it on the floor in front of them. Second, they could try to give the dog a treat, but then drop it before it could reach the dog. And in the third scenario... They would try to give the food, but the gap was blocked. And so the dogs behaved noticeably differently when the food was intentionally placed on the floor. They took longer to approach the barrier. They sat or laid down more often and did not wag their tails as much. Now, Shuneman does acknowledge that there are other researchers who are skeptical of the ability for dogs to attribute intention to others. But argues that this trial, one that's been performed with other animals, shows that there is potentially a real understanding. She also acknowledges that there might be other nonverbal clues that the dogs are picking up that do not require them to extrapolate the state of mind of their human companions. But she stands by her work. Again, we have to be careful here. What we can say, though, is that we have the first evidence that not only chimpanzees and birds, but dogs might also have this very basic but substantial capacity that is part of theory of mind, she said." And so Schoenemann actually usually works with children to understand how the concept of intentionality emerges in humans, but she wanted to further explore the bounds of this idea using dogs as models. And so she hopes her work will inspire others to take a deeper look. She also hopes that it will help dog owners better understand their best friends, Noting that some people believe their dogs understand every thought and feeling, while others think of them as simply reacting to human commands and desires without any kind of further understanding. What we show is that the answer might be somewhere in between, that they are sensitive to humans in a certain way, she said. So yeah, that is very cool. And um, I definitely think I... I feel like I'm in the middle, um, though I tend to push a little bit towards the they totally understand everything we're doing, um, especially with smart dogs. So uh Wally and Pal are both very smart dogs. Um they're very well trained, they know um, you know, they they know a lot of tricks, they know how to uh, you know, take commands, they don't always want to do it, but they all they do very well know how to do it. And um, so it's very interesting to think about whether or not they're actually um, able to understand us as much as I feel that they do. Um, I'm a terrible uh, anthropomorphist uh, when it comes to actual real life. Um, I definitely assign um, human traits to pretty much everything. Um, I fully admit that, even though I also fully admit fully acknowledge that it is absolutely my um, you know biases and my uh, theory of mind uh, projecting things out into the world but um, but yeah, okay, we are actually going to take a break and when we come back, we are going to switch from talking about dogs to a dog bone shaped uh, asteroid. So, yeah, please do t- stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist, I save lives. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I'm meeting at our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia. I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists combining genres like rock, pop, hip hop and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m. with a repeat show on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey, this is Maddie, host of Planet Emo, a show that aims to bring you the latest and greatest in emo music from Massachusetts and beyond. If you ask 10 different people what emo music is, you'll get 10 very different answers, and my goal is to bring in every one of those perspectives. From 80s hardcore to the power pop of today, we'll hear it all. For your dose of early morning feelings, catch Planet Emo from 6 to 7 a.m. every Thursday right here on Valley Free Radio. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And thank you. Hey kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with time kids love for the mom is truly transparent proof you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect parent don't tell dad you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are for more information on how you can adopt visit adoptuskids.org. a public service announcement from the u.s department of health and human services adopt us kids in the ad council Did you get the vaccination? No, not that vaccination. The soul vaccination. That's what we deliver on the Soul Patrol every Tuesday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Join me, Dave Keaton, with classic funk, soul, R&B, along with a good dose of new disco, deep house, chill, and yeah, maybe a little Yacht Rock, too. Don't miss the Soul Patrol with me, Dave Keating, every Tuesday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., always streaming on valleyfreeradio.org. Go vaccination, everybody, get in line. Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3, Northampton. STDs often have no symptoms, but if left untreated, they can lead to serious health problems, especially for young women. Every year in the U.S., about 24,000 women become infertile from untreated STDs, which means they may never be able to have kids. It's important to get tested regularly. All STDs are treatable. Many are curable. GYT, get yourself tested. Go to GYTnow.org to find a testing center near you. A message from CDC. In to straight to the music on Sunday evenings with yours truly, Miasha Lee, giving you a dose of serious R and B only on 103.3 FM Northampton. And we are back, and again we are going to be switching from talking about dogs to a dog bone shaped asteroid. Sorry, I forgot to take my mask off before I resumed. Um, And so, uh, live radio, everyone. (laughs) So, we are going to be talking about an asteroid that is actually called Cleopatra, but it has been nicknamed the dog bone due to its odd elongated shape. And so Cleopatra is 168 miles long and sports two small moons and has an oddly low density for a metallic object. And so uh, to frame this a bit, I was just curious about 168 miles because I always think of the you know comparison to a football field or to the width of a human hair. And so I did uh, Thirty seconds of googling, <laughs> and found that Massachusetts, the our state, uh, if you're here in Massachusetts, is 190 miles long at the widest point. So, give or take, um, Cleopatra is about the size of Massachusetts, uh, at least lengthwise, and it's weird. <laughs> So um, it is also spinning so fast along its axis, axis that it's threatening basically to completely disintegrate. And so they think that the spin might actually explain the presence of the two moons. And so the moons are Alex Helios and Cleo Selene. And the findings come from two papers published recently. The first, from researchers led by Frank Marchis, a planetary astronomer at the SETI Institute, looked at the physical properties of the object, such as its shape and chemical composition. This team used the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope, <laughs> all caps, to make its discoveries. And again, Cleopatra is relatively big. Um, You know, the size of Massachusetts is not tiny. Uh, It's not like it's Delaware. (laughs) Shout out to Delawareans. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Anyways, uh, but it is far away. So it's in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, which of course makes it kind of hard to see. It's pretty faint. And so the closest it actually gets to Earth is around 120 million miles away. Marchis noted that they needed a telescope like the VLT, which has adaptive optics in order to counteract the blurring effects of the Earth's atmosphere. So really nice, sophisticated, modern telescopes are able to basically uh, clear out the blur using... um, basically using algorithms and various kinds of uh, optics. And so we're able to get much clearer pictures than we used to be able to. And so it's very exciting. So we can see these kinds of objects much better. In addition, they used an instrument attached to the VLT called the SPHERE or Spectro Polarometric High Contrast Exoplanet Research Instrument. The Sphere instrument is one of these next generation adaptive optics systems, which is now capable of working in visible light, said Marches. Consequently, it provides images in optical light, in this case in red, with the full resolution of the eight meter telescope, like if the VLT were in space, which is of course why we send uh, telescopes to space is to be able to get away from that um, atmospheric blur he actually added, thanks to this amazingly amazing qu- image quality, we can now see details about the shape of the asteroid, see the two lobes and the bridge connecting them and so Cleopatra was actually discovered in eighteen eighty despite being very faint uh, by Czech, by Czech astronomer johan palissa and Apparently, it gets weirder every time someone goes and spends any time looking at it. So the first moon was discovered in a 19 in 1980 during an eclipse. In 2000, radar observations hinted at the odd shape of the object, two lobes connected by a narrow neck, hence the dog bone idea. And so in 2011, a team led by Marchus announced that they discovered the second moon using the Keck 2 optical telescope. Now, the moons were formally recognized and named after two of Cleopatra's children. So the actual historical Cleopatra. Her children really were named Alex Helios and Cleopatra Selene. (laughs) Um, You know nothing like uh having fancy names when you're well when you would have potentially grown up to be the rulers of a kingdom but unfortunately as we know cleopatra was the last ptolemaic ruler of egypt um sorry my history nerd is coming out anyways the f- these first observations just basically showed that the system was unique and worth studying, but they didn't really have any real data points. They kind of had to extrapolate where the moons were going. And so both the orbits of the moons and the shape of the asteroid itself had to be approximated. And with that came an approximation of the density. And so the team were able to observe Cleopatra in 2017 and 2019 from different angles, using the um, VLT, which allowed them to create a three-dimensional view of the asteroid. And so it showed them that, for instance, one of the lobes is larger than the other. And they were finally able to determine the precise orbits of the moons. And it turns out the original estimates were off by quite a bit, (laughs) which meant that inferences drawn from that data were also off by quite a bit. Um, this updated information was important to better estimate the asteroid's true mass and radius, notes Miroslav Braz, an astronomer from Charles University in the Czech Republic, and first author of the second paper, which looked at the asteroid's orbital characteristics and its two moons. They also found that the object rotates at a break net rate, Of one revolution per five hours. Think about an object the size of Massachusetts orbiting, I mean, um, rotating at one revolution per five hours. That's pretty fast for something that large. Actually, we know it more precisely, at 5.3852827 hours, Braz said in an email. This might seem normal for an asteroid, but Cleopatra is so long that at its ends, the rotation speed is very close to the escape speed. And so he hypothesizes that if another asteroid were to hit Cleopatra, it might result in an even higher speed of rotation, which would unfortunately cause the asteroid to break apart. And so with the improved data, the team was able to calculate a mass for the object that is 35% smaller than previous estimates. Though Cleopatra is a metallic object, it has a density less than half that of iron And so, in the end, this suggests that rather than being a fairly solid object, the asteroid is instead a quote-unquote rubble pile that formed from a large impact. And so, knowing that the object is actually a loose conglomeration of debris rather than a solid object might actually explain the moons even better. They may have been ejected from the main body of the asteroid. Due to the shape and spin of the main asteroid, we have calculated that some areas of Cleopatra are unstable, meaning that a boulder located there would be ejected, Marches explained. We can't yet prove it, but it's possible that the moons are indeed infants of the main asteroid, ejected after an oblique impact and formed by accreting those ejected pebbles and boulders." Now, astronomers have found other extremely elongated asteroids, and these two have moons, which suggests this might be a regular occurrence for such objects. They learned that the moon Selene is around 310 miles away from the center of Cleopatra, while Alex Helios is some 407 miles away. They are slightly smaller than six miles in size, and the astronomers believe that they may be spherical, but they haven't been able to see that sort of detail yet because, again, it's very far away and it's very faint. And even with these really good telescopes, uh, six miles is really hard to see. Um, Sorry, I forgot to check how... um, a distance for six miles on the ground here. But uh, it's pretty, it's pretty small when you think about how far away it is in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Uh, so yeah, trying to find a six mile long object there is, it's pretty impressive that they can do it at all, frankly. Um, so yeah. Hopefully, they will be observed in the future during an occultation event when Cleopatra and moons pass in front of a star so that observers on Earth can measure their shadows, said Braz. And so the team would like to try and remeasure measure the moon's orbits next year. They expect they'll find some wobble or um, deviation due to tidal effects and unexpected perturbations due to the odd shape of the asteroid they may even find a third moon uh marches suggested so yeah very cool so in space news even closer to home much closer to home honestly uh i forgot to talk last week cuz i was so uh bogged down in covid-19 talk uh i forgot to talk last week about the confirmation that the Perseverance Rover has indeed managed to drill and capture not one now but two samples of a rock um, from a samples of rock from a rock nicknamed Rochette on September first and then again on September seventh. The two samples are from the same rock, and basically that's a short a sort of insurance policy. Uh, notes Deputy Project Scientist Katie Stack Morgan of uh, NASA's JPL. And so it allows Perseverance to drop the two samples in different locations to maximize the chances that one or hopefully both will be recovered in a future mission. Even though some of its rocks are not, Mars is hard, said Lori Glaze, director of of NASA's Planetary Science Division in a September 10th news briefing. Of course, she was referring to Percy's failed first attempt to drill a core sample, which ended up just disintegrating. And so apparently all of the rocks that Percy will take samples from will be named after national parks, which is pretty cool. And so right now the rover is in an area called Mercantour, and Rochette or Little Rock comes from a village in France near that national park. Um, obviously national parks internationally, not just American national parks, because this is an international project. Excitingly, the onboard instruments suggest that the rock is made from basalt and may be from an ancient lava flow. And so these types of rocks preserve their age well. So when researchers are actually able to get a hold of the sample, they should be able to date the rock uh, based on concentrations of certain elements and isotopes. And this will be the first time that researchers will be able to really date pristine Martian rocks. So fingers crossed that everything goes well because it's going to be really exciting if it does. And so the rover also found traces of salt minerals, which suggest the possibility of the rock having interacted with water over long time periods. It suggests groundwater may have been moving through the Martian subsurface and may have created habitable environments within the rocks. It really feels like this rich treasure trove of information for when we get this sample back, Stack Morgan says. And so, once the sample is back, scientists can search inside those salts for tiny fluid bubbles that might be trapped there. This would actually allow them to get a glimpse into the time when Jezero Crater was wet and could have sustained ancient Mars life. These represent the beginning of Mars sample return, said planetary scientist Meenakshi Wadwa of Arizona State University in Tempe at the at the news briefing. I've dreamed of having samples back from Mars to analyze in my lab since I was a graduate student. We've talked about Mars samples return, sample returns for decades. Now it's starting to actually feel real. So super exciting. Very happy about that. And uh though we do have to temper our excitement because remember that even if the first samples Uh, Even those first samples won't be brought back to Earth until at least the early 2030s. Uh, So it's definitely going to have to be delayed gratification, um, but it's really exciting that uh, Percy is starting to be able to actually get those tucked away and into their sampling uh, tubes and really uh, having that proof of, uh, concept become a reality, um, because I think everyone was a little crushed when that initial rock, uh, disintegrated and nothing was found to be in the rock, uh, sample container. So yeah, it's very exciting to be sort of back on, uh, track and working towards really getting, um, more samples and exploring further and really getting to know Mars in a way that we've just never been able to before. So it's very exciting. And back on Earth, there's also some good news. NASA has officially set a launch date for the long-delayed James Webb Space Telescope. So... Finally, (laughs) oh, there's been so many delays and so many cost overruns and so much drama. But finally, December 18th, 2021, the telescope will be launched on an Ariane 5 rocket in conjunction with the European Space Agency and Ariane Space. And so the reason the ESA is launching the rocket is basically they made a deal with NASA to have a share of observation time using the infrared telescope. And so, um, again, the web will be able to see longer wavelengths of light than the Hubble and thus should be able to see the earliest galaxies of the universe. And so... Again, this is kind of a fingers crossed, not a done deal yet kind of thing, uh, because not only is Mars hard, but space in general is hard. And that's something that, uh, you know, people in, uh, the space business, shall we say, are always trying to remind people that, uh, unfortunately, when you're dealing with things that involve um, you know lots of combustibles and also lots of tiny moving parts uh things can go wrong, and um yeah it's it's unfortunate that in space there's not a lot of room for error and so the twenty meter long telescope's unfurling will require fifty major deployments and 178 major release mechanisms. And that's just the major ones. So this is going to be real, real big. They must all work perfectly, or the telescope will basically become the world's most expensive piece of space junk. And so the telescope is set to be deployed near a Sun-Earth Lagrange point, 150 are 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. So that's four times as far away as the moon, which we're already having trouble getting to at this point, um, at least with manned missions. ESA is proud that Webb will launch from Europe's spaceport on an Ariane 5 rocket specially adapted for the mission, said ESA Director of Space Transportation, Daniel Neuenchaunder. In a press release, we are on track. The spaceport is busy preparing for the arrival of this extraordinary payload, and the Ariane 5 elements for, the, for this launch are coming together. We are fully committed with all web partners to the success of this once-in-a-generation mission. So again, this is amazing and just such a thrilling Example of what humans can do when they uh, work together and put their technical knowledge um, to work. And, you know, the James Webb is supposed to be an amazing telescope. Uh, but again, it involves a lot of moving parts. And so if you thought the landing for the Perseverance rover was a nail-biter... This, this is going to blow that out of the water. I mean, this is going to make your fingers just bleed. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and so it's very exciting. Um, not going to lie, even though it's also incredibly fraught. <laughs> the James Webb has really, really needed to uh, get into space for several years now. Um, as we all know, the Hubble is old the hubble is amazing and has given us so much more understanding of the universe it i mean i remember when we first started to see pictures from hubble and it was just mind blowing how amazing those pictures were and just breathtaking to see you know galaxies that are just You know, they're so far away that human brains can barely grasp uh, the idea of um, how far away they are. And some of them are just so beautiful. The nebula pictures that Hubble has taken, um, you know, really, really iconic uh, pictures of space. Most of those came from Hubble in the last, uh, you know, 20 years. But Hubble is old Hubble is working on, you know, old, old, old material at this point. Um, and it's, it's aging and it's, it's getting to be where, uh, you know, it's already moved to backup systems in a lot of places. Um, and so it's definitely a place where we have to, move on and be able to have a new telescope so that Hubble can, you know, fail and we won't go dark. Um, and so, yeah, um, Hubble is amazing, but hopefully the James Webb will be just as amazing, if not more, um, though I think Hubble will always have a special place in, um, you know, space history because of how it first really brought uh, the far edges of its visible universe to our eyes. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Um, Yeah, you've been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.